You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing the most important features in a crown and bridge cement. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lowe, an expert in the field of aesthetic dentistry and composite restorative materials and procedures. Dr. Lowe received the 2004 Gordon Christensen Outstanding Lecturers Award and in 2005 was awarded diplomat status on the American Board of Aesthetic Dentistry. Currently in private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, Dr. Lowe lectures internationally, is a regular speaker for Viva Learning, and publishes in a variety of well-known dental journals on aesthetic and restorative dentistry. Dr. Lowe, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Phil, it's always a pleasure. I've uh, had a long and wonderful experience with Viva Learning. You've got a great company and a great system there. It's always nice to uh, get a chance to chat a little bit. Yeah, thank you. And, and it's great for us to have people like you, uh, really respected KOL in the profession, to come on the show, either as a webinar speaker, which you've done in the past, and now uh, returning for podcasts, which is, again, we're, we're very happy to have you. So we're talking about a pretty important topic here, which is dental cement. and you know, many of our listeners have some confusion about which cement is best, and there's a lot of different materials out there. So let's start with what are the most important features for Crown and Bridge cement? Well, I tell you, I, I agree with your statement. Clinicians are confused. Now, uh, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about uh, our age or lack of it, you know, being 64 and having practiced for uh, about 37 years. I remember a day when there was no confusion, Phil. There was only one crown and bridge cement. It was called zinc phosphate cement. Mm-hmm. Remember it well. Now, zinc phosphate cement has been around in our profession and still is for many years, cemented millions of crowns, and, and it has a bond strength of zero. And it's soluble in the oral fluids, but yet it has been around and, and proven to be a, a, a very useful material. Now, here's the other thing I always talk about in lectures to docs about cements, because everybody's always wondering, well, you know, how high is the bond strength? Well, my crowns fall off with this cement and this, that, and the other. What's the most important factor in a crown actually staying on a prep? Clue number one, it's not the cement. It's the retention. It's the preparation. The preparation has to be retentive first. There's no magic cement that allows us to bond to a non-retentive prep. My best advice in those cases are make the contacts really tight. It's not about how strong is the glue. The other thing that we all think about is margins. And I always say in a lecture too, Phil, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings. All of my margins are open, and all of yours are open. <laughs> it's just a question of how open they are. Right. You know, we, we consider a closed, quote-unquote, margin 30 to 50 microns because our exploiter can't perceive a little tick or a discrepancy. But seeing that bacteria are one micron in diameter, that means in a 30-micron margin, 29 of those little suckers can walk, ar- walk arm in arm underneath your closed margin and wreak havoc on the tooth structure and the restoration. So rule number one is there is no closed margin. Rule number two, cements are not the end-all and be-all to retaining crowns. The primary factors are, number one, prep design. Mark Lada, Dr. Mark Lada is the dean at Creighton University. I've known Mark for years. He was the dean of biomaterials. I, I reference him all the time in this area because, uh, you know, according to his uh, uh, statistics, 
or his opinion, 3.0 millimeters is axial height minimum for retention. How many times are we in a clinical situation where we don't have ideal axial height, yet we're hoping that a cement will make up the difference? Mm -hmm. Number two is ability to isolate. Isolate the operating field from moisture. We know in our world we use a lot of resins and bonding, and resins and bonding are not liking of moisture. You know, they're hydrophobic. So people can ask me, you know, what's your favorite cement, this, that, or the other. I, I ask them, you know, well, tell me the clinical situation. Is it above the gum? Is it at the gum level? Is it below the gum? Can I isolate? I mean, there are a lot of different things to think about when uh, choosing the cement. So when you're talking about most important features, Everybody talks about ease of seating and handling. Everybody loves ease of seating and handling. That really goes to viscosity and film thickness. And, you know, there are many good products on the market that fit that bill. Resins are uh, acidic by nature. So sometimes people complain of postoperative sensitivity after cementation. If you're using uh, a resin and you're using an acid etch protocol, uh, there could be a chance for post-operative sensitivity just based on the material and nothing else. So you have to follow those regimented steps to avoid those issues. Uh, as far as ease of cement removal, uh, resins are hard to remove. Uh, if you have excess resin around a margin and it's light cured or it's dual cured, then, uh, then you, have to need a, you have to get a burr to take it off. So cleanup does become an issue, and uh, ease of removal uh, of excess during the cleanup is a critical thing. Going back to the days when we used zinc phosphate, we used zinc phosphate for how many years in the dental profession before newer cements came on the market? How many years do you think? I'd just be pulling a number out of the sky, but uh, I don't know when zinc phosphate really came on the market, but I would guess 50, 70 years. Right. So didn't that, start using resins for cement uh, until uh, the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And there were a few generations in between. If you look at the different types of cements, we we went from um, zinc phosphate to uh, polycarboxylate. Polycarboxylate right. cements would chelate the dentin, give you a little bit more bond strength. The problem there was film thickness. And then glass ionomers right. uh, hit hit the hit the road and you know glass ionomers were wonderful with all this fluoride release but they were so soluble that they would uh, you know, melt away in the oral fluids until somebody got the idea to put some resin in there to make them insoluble hence RNGIs, right. resin, resin modified, modified mm -hmm. glass ionomers so I'm just thinking though that how the zinc phosphate concept supports your point though the prep design and retention of the the actual prep is so critical because back in the day for seven decades, if when we were using zinc phosphate, you didn't see these crowns falling out everywhere. There was a lot of downside, I guess, to using zinc, zinc phosphate compared to some of the cements today, but they still worked very well when the prep design was very carefully done, where there was, as Dr. Lada says, at least probably three millimeters of axial wall, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with prep design. You know, in the days, you know, in the early days, a lot, a, a lot of things were, you know, cast gold. It cast gold meant bevels. And then when we started to get into PFMs, we would do shoulders and bevels. Now, bevels were very nice for seals. And plus, in a, with a material like zinc phosphate, the bacteria have quite a ways to be able to cause damage. So you had a little bit of a built-in safety net with a cement like glass ionomer when you used a, a bevel 
and a knife edge type of preparation. Mm-hmm. But as we move to uh, cast, uh, castable and pressable and, also, and, and felspathic ceramics, and we went more to chamfer uh, margins because ceramics don't support bevels, good example there is uh, Dicor. I mean, when Dicor came out, Dicor was ahead of its time. Dicor was an all-ceramic material. It was beautifully aesthetic for what was compared at the time, but they used different colors of zinc phosphate cement to cement this. It did, they didn't bond the ceramic. So the film, the, the, uh, uh, the strength of, of the cement uh, adhering to the tooth was not there, but also because of the uh, limited ability of the, the porcelains and shrinkage, uh, the marginal gaps were such that uh, something that had solubility would be a problem. So, you know, we, we've, we've come a long way. If you can focus on one particular feature of a crown and bridge cement, is solubility the most important? Well, I don't know if it's the most important, but it certainly is. It certainly ranks up there. Uh, and to, to talk about what I think is in today's world becoming more important is bioactivity. Now, now here's here's the thing when we talk about bioactivity. I mean, glass ionomers, uh, you know, that was fine. Fluoride release, this, that, and the other. Certain resin ionomers have some fluoride release. It's limited as to how long and to how much. But protection over long term when you're dealing with the microenvironment, that's why I tell doctors in lecture all the time, you know what, everybody wants a magic bullet. But what you got to do is think like a doctor. When they ask me what's my favorite cement, I say, you know, where's the margin? Is it super gingival? Is it at the level of the tissue? Is it below the tissue? Does the patient know which end of the toothbrush has the bristles? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I mean, all of these things come into play because the microenvironment where the margin is, which we know is open, is going to be subject to acid attack. So you have to think about those terms when choosing a cement. And when you talk about bioactivity today, uh, I I talk about a crown and bridge cement that's been around for a while now, Ceramere Crown and Bridge. It's a calcium aluminate. It's a different material. It's not a resin. It's not a glass ionomer, although it has some glass ionomer chemistry. But this cement actually, in the presence of saliva or moisture, forms apatite, apatite crystals on the surface of the cement. So I always ask people, I said, you know, you've all got crowns in your mouth, right? You know, are some of the margins under the gum? Right, they are. Is there saliva? Is there moisture back there? Yes, there is. So let's assume that, you know, okay, what I'm saying is right and that all margins are open, and they are. Uh, that means there's cement exposed to the microenvironment and to the oral environment or the sulcular fluids. The job of the cement really is to fill the gap, right? It's, it's to, right. to close that gap and not go away. Mm-hmm. If you have a cement that will form appetite crystals on the surface of that cement in the presence of moisture, to me that's a game changer. No other cements does that. Now, there are some others that are coming along, but this was, I think, a breakthrough in in the delivery of Crown and Bridge because most of our Crown and Bridge, a lot of it's redos. A lot of time in my office, I can't help where the margin is because the previous margin was already subgingival, and now there's decay. Now I've got to prep it even more. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a surgical case, sometimes not. But, you know, if I'm dealing with those areas, I'm not gravitating toward a resin when something that's moisture-friendly and bioactive will fill the bill much better. Now, that being said, sometimes you got to compromise. Sometimes you don't have those axial height walls. Sometimes the patient won't do gum surgery to do crown lengthening. Sometimes you need to do acid etch 
and, and resin to get additional bond strength because the prep does lack some retention. That's when the dentist has to make a choice. There's gray areas. You would sacrifice the bioactive uh, characteristic of Ceramere Granite Bridge in, well, the, in the event that you really are very short on retention from the prep itself. I, I tell you, in, in, in my clinical world, uh, I'd cement it first with Ceramere. And if I had a problem, I'd go back to a resin if I needed more retention. Mm-hmm. I use resins primarily in aesthetic areas and when materials are thin and will have show through because resins are, are definitely needed cements. There's mm-hmm. there's no question about it. There are get- some self-etching resin cements now that have some degree of appetite formation as well. As I said, these materials are starting to evolve. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, there are some resin alternatives, but still the traditional resin cements don't offer any type of ion exchange whatsoever. So when you're above the gum, it's no problem. If you're in a micro environment where there's saliva or you can't control moisture, it could be potentially a problem. And all these wonderful dentists that put all these rubber dams on and do everything when they're cementing crowns, all that's great for pictures and and articles. But I tell you, in reality, it doesn't happen in the private practice. And even when you place a rubber dam to cement crowns and and veneers and things like that, you got to get the dam out of the way because most of these things are at the level of the tissue below. So you're still dealing with the microenvironment. You're just not dealing with the tongue and some of the other things. But uh, I, I definitely feel strongly about the, the bioactivity thing. And, you know, when you talk about uh, everyday practice, I mean, we're dealing with those factors. We're dealing with the ability to isolate. We're dealing with margin placement. We're dealing with uh, sometimes less than ideal preps. But uh, it's good to have a cement that, that covers a lot of the, the biologic issues as long as we have a prep design, it's good. So as far as um, moisture tolerant, how does Ceramira stand up to like a glass ionomer cement? Very similar. They're both moisture tolerant. Mm-hmm. The only ones that aren't moisture tolerant would be resins. So a resin modified glass ionomer would be less moisture tolerant than a true glass ionomer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the cement, crown and bridge cements are RMGIs, not straight GIs. Right. Um, so you, you never really know how much is the resin component and how much is the glass ionomer component. Those vary quite a bit. So you have to look at those different things. And it gets confusing. And that's why we're all confused because there are so many good products out there now in all the categories. It does make, you know, the good news, as I said, the good news is we've got a lot of choices. The bad news is we have a lot of choices. Right, right. <laughs> and that, that, as far as the patients that have these vital crowns that are, they're not endodontically treated, and there is some sensitivity. Would a product like uh, Ceramere Crown and Bridge be beneficial from the standpoint of reducing post-op sensitivity after cementation? Well, there's another good point you bring up because the answer to that is unequivocally yes. And the reason is that Ceramere, when it's set, it has a basic end set pH. So the pH is around 8.4, 8.5. I don't know the exact number, but it's basic. Mm-hmm. Basic pH buffers the negative effects of acid. Bacteria produce acid. So anything that can help buffer the pH in the microenvironment is going to benefit by helping to lessen the damage done by those patients that don't know which end of the toothbrush has the bristles or interproximal where they don't get the floss and they can't keep the the plaque from adhering to the cement in the crown. Those are all definite pluses. 
And, and the other thing with a basic end set pH, this material is extremely biofriendly. Not too many cements, particularly in the resin categories, uh, can say that because the end set somewhere around two or three. Now, you mentioned biofriendly. Is, is that important when you're cementing an implant in? Because you certainly don't want to have peri-implantitis based on residue, you know, leftover cement. Is that something well, to take in consideration here? Well, now that's a very good question, a good topic. Because absolutely, you know, I saw I saw a doctor from University of Washington, and I forget his name. I saw him lecture a couple of years ago. Scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> because, you know, we've all cemented crowns on implant abutments, most of us that are dealing with implants. Not everything is screw retained. You know, you have to you have to have an ideal placement for screw retained. And we we could do a whole nother podcast on that. Mm-hmm. I work with a perioprosthodontist. We do initial pre prosthetic surgery and wax ups to put the gum in the bone where it needs to be to have the tooth come out of the right spot rather than just take a CT implant in and hope it can be restored. That's a whole nother story. Right. But when you talk about people that are saying, well, we can't cement implant crowns anymore. We have to do everything screw retained. I don't live in that world. And most dentists don't either. We could get on a whole nother thing, and I, I don't want to get too upset because right. this really outrages me. I've worked with a lot of good surgeons over the years, but they don't consult the restorative. They put the screws in, and then they expect us to fix it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In our office, we do wax-ups, we do all this pre-prosthetic work, and then we tell the surgeon where the implant needs to be. Mm-hmm. We do it in reverse, which is not what happens. So right. I don't think there's a world for most dentists where not cementing an implant crown is a world they, they live in. So that being said, with this periimplantitis, you're absolutely right. Having something that's biocompatible and tissue-friendly because of the basic NPH already puts a cement like Ceramir in a class where uh, most other cements are not. I do know there's a new product coming out from Doxa for you know implant crowns called Bioceramic Implant Cement, and people that want to get more information on that can get that from uh, you know their website CeramirDental.com. The biocompatibility and the periimplantitis really need to be addressed, and you have to. If people people that think they're just putting crowns on with temporary cement because they're retrievable. Guess what? My opinion, and I think it's the right one, most of my implant crowns fit so tightly on the abutments because they're milled so precisely that sometimes when I do a try-in, I can't get it off without cement. Hmm. So people that think they're using tampon to make these things retrievable, I think they're just living in fantasy land because I think anything you cement an implant crown with on a well-fitted abutment is not going to be retrievable without using a burr. How is Ceramere Crown and Bridge as far as saving the clinician chair side time and, and and of course, chair side time, saving that is the same as saving money. How does that work? You know what? We're all penny wise and dollar foolish. I can't tell you how many bad decisions are made because they save 10 cents on something or they think that there's wasted impression material in a mixing tip. When we used to squirt this stuff out on a mixing pad and waste a half a toothpaste tube full of impression material for a single crown. I mean, saving time and money. Chair time is money, period. How long it takes you? How many products do you need? Now, let's let's just go through a resin cementation. If I'm cementing a veneer, what do I need to place a veneer? Well, I need phosphoric acid, 37%. I need silane. I need hydrofluoric acid to etch the porcelain. I need the bonding agent. If I'm cementing a zirconium crown, I need a metallic primer. 
if I'm using a resin. All those things cost money and they're extra steps in the chair side sequence of, of cementation. Ceramic crown and bridge you can use for metal, you can use for zirconium, you can use for high strength ceramics like Emacs as long as it's at least a millimeter in thickness and for most posterior crowns if they're not a millimeter in thickness you're not prepping the tooth enough sorry mm -hmm. those are cementable now so as long as those emacs crowns come back etched you need no silane so you save that step and that money on zirconium you need no metallic primer to get rid of uh, you need no cleaner to get rid of the phosphates from the triene before you use the metallic primer, before you use the resin cement. So saving time and money is not only, it, it has nothing to do really with the cost of the cement. It has everything to do with the chair time and the cost of all the other things you need when you're using the other materials to do the cementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a brilliant insight. Makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But it, it's it's amazing how clinicians will look at something and go, uh, you know, that's kind of pricey. I'm, let's go this way. And they just don't see all the different things behind the scenes. That's, but, that's uh, because clinicians are clinicians. I'm the same thing. I'm not a businessman. We're, we're willing to, we're, we're penny wise and dollar foolish. We're looking at the wrong things to cut overhead and expense. Right. Time is the key factor and inventory is the key factor. I mean, right. a little bottle of adhesive. I mean, how much do you spend on that? 50 bucks, 100 bucks? I mean, a bottle of metallic primer that you might use every, you know, I don't know, depending upon your, your practice. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times, you know, in, in, in my practice, I mean, I, the, the thing will expire before I use the whole thing. Right. You know, uh, so then I'm buying it again. Yeah, I mean, the biggest cost for any company or business. Silane evaporates. Right. There you go. There you go. Hydrolyzes. Right. Well, I mean, there's no question. The big cost is labor. The big cost is your time. I don't know what it, what the going hourly rate is of what what the value is on an hour of chair time for a, for a doctor. You know, well, it totally depends, and the doctors need to figure that out themselves because it's based on overhead. What's your rent? What's your salary? What's your uh, staff costs? What's your fixed costs? What's your you know? Most doctors have no clue. We charge based on what insurance tells us we can charge, or what the doctor down the street is charging. And that makes no sense because, you know, you have to run it, you know, efficiently. So if you don't know what your costs are and you can't figure that out, it makes sense to have less steps and less inventory to help control costs. And, if you know, that, that's a whole other thing. Now, that to me, I don't want to make it sound like this is all about cost because, to me, it's all about the benefit to the patient. Mm -hmm. Right. Because another thing people will say, well, you know, I need a mixer. You know, because, I, you know, everybody's used to shooting things out of a dual barrel syringe and mix, mixing things up. And, and this chemistry doesn't work that way yet. So you need a mixer. So, so, so what? Go on eBay. Spend, shoot 90 bucks and get a mixer. Who, who is it the convenience for? Is it for you or your assistant or for your patient? Right. When you say a mixer, I mean, you, mean a, you mean a triturator, the, the old-fashioned well, triturator. Well, it's triturator was from amalgams, but, I mean, they're, they're not like wiggle bugs anymore. Anybody that uses glass ionomer has a mixer. Right. right. Uh, if you don't use glass ionomer, you're an adhesive practice. Look, think about what's best for your patient. You want to use bioactive materials. Some of them need to be mixed. Some of them don't. Mm -hmm. But to me, I think about the patient first. The other thing is Ceramere does come in a powder liquid form. So if you're that dead set about popping 99 bucks on eBay, <laughs> just get 
just just get the powder liquid and measure out the little scoop and two little drops and mix it like we did for years and put it in the crown and put it on. No silane, no metal uh, modifiers, no any no anything else. So I mean, there's a way around that. Yeah. But you know, I, I know the way that doctors think was I get a lot of their questions and I said, think like a doctor. What's best for the patient? Yeah, we can see. We I'm talking to my listeners now. We can see that Dr. Lowe had. A very busy day today at the office <laughs> because he's as a, he's as animated as it can be right now. He's sitting there in his uh, office with his guitar in his hand, screaming into the microphone. But uh, this is great. This is this is exactly what our listeners want. So we're running out of time here. This was a fantastic uh, podcast, Bob, and I you, you do great stuff with us. That's why we love having you on. So well, and I, I love doing it too, as you can tell. The, the passion is there, and and I you know I I hate to. Sound like I'm standing on the pulpit all the time, but sometimes you just got to get the message out no, there. No, Listen, absolutely. you have to. Well, this this podcast will be listened to by thousands and thousands of dentists. We're, we're doing over a thousand listens per week now, just on Viva Learning on the podcast. We're doing seven thousand webinar viewings a week on Viva Learning. Seven thousand. Mm, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. So it's just the amount of digital information that's leaving uh, our sites and our podcast platforms are just they're just uh, going through the roof as far as the trend up. And we're in like 160 different, 150 different countries and it just keeps going. So what you're, what you're uh, talking about here will be listened to by a lot of dentists. They're going to be going back to their office the next day or whenever they're listening or maybe they're listening to it during lunch. They're going to go there during their commute, during their commute or on the, on the, uh, on the bike at the gym um, doing their thing. But the, the bottom line is they're getting, insight from a dentist that's been doing this for a while you've been around the block a few times it's not your first rodeo and the the type of information that you're providing them they would never be able to get you know and now they can get it anytime they want they just hit the button and they listen to dr low talk and and there really is some great information here that is not what something you'll read on a sell sheet when you visit a company's website you don't get this stuff. You won't read them on. You won't read them on a sales sheet, and you won't hear them from a salesperson. Right. Uh, that's that's the thing. nothing against any, any of that stuff, but I, I tell you, I, I, and I, I work with a lot of wonderful manufacturers with a lot of great products. And when you talk to salespeople, it's all about well, I'm in competition with them. Or, right. I, as I, as I tell doctors, I said, you know what? There are a lot of good materials out there. What's your clinical situation, and what will benefit that patient for that procedure? That's what dictates what I use, not what's the special of the month, what's, uh, what's uh, you know, who, which salespeople I like or don't like or what I can get through mail order and save two cents or 20 cents. That has nothing to do with it. It's everything to do with what's best for the patient. Right. It's not about what's my favorite this week or next week or, or the following week. It's about what clinical situations will benefit and what products best fit that situation. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap, but there are certain indications where one product shines over another, and that's not against any manufacturer or company. That's just the way it is. And like I said, going back to the beginning, it's we got good news. we got a lot of great products. The bad news is we got a lot of great products. Right. <laughs> so I, I lecture on placing, simplifying posterior composites or whatever, reducing the steps, as long as you don't sacrifice the quality of the result. And that's the ticket. So, so that the best cement in the world, the highest bond strength, is acid etching resin. It's not self-etching resin. That's a little bit lower. It's not even a calcium aluminates or resin-modified diatomers, although their bond strengths are better than 
They're right. polycarboxate or straight glass ionomers or zinc phosphate. There's a range. I think the best thing a clinician can do is just be informed on what's out there and uh, and pick and choose. You can't buy everything, obviously, but there are a few things you need. There's no one thing that will serve all. Just know what's best and know the difference. And uh, I think the world of bioactive materials is going to expand greatly over the short period of time in the future and beyond. And Ceramere, Crown and Bridge led the charge there in the cement categories. There are other materials, you know, in the buildups and liners and, and composites that, you know, like Activa that thinks it's a composite but might be a resin-modified ionomer. I mean, they're attributes of both. I mean, we are seeing big changes. And and the other thing I, I tell my the, my young dentist listeners when you're in school, we didn't have enough time in four years to learn everything we had to know, and we only had one cement. I know you don't have enough time. Uh-huh. That is so true. That is so, so, true. So the, so the bottom line is get your information. I mean, from Viva Learning, you can get a start. You go get a mentor. Go see live lectures and hands-on. Really be involved in education because – this is a rapidly changing field. And the talk about, you know, narrowing back to Crown and Bridge Cements, this also is rapidly changing, just like every other facet of restorative dentistry. It keeps it interesting for me as an old guy. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate your insight, Dr. 64. Yeah, happy birthday whenever it's coming up, or is it today? Or well, past? no, it's not today. It's, a, it's September. I'll be 64 in September. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know. you got a while you know, ago, September. Yeah, i got a while ago. <laughs> what Paul McCartney's song, Will You Still Need Me? Will You Still Feed Me when I'm 64? I mean, it seems to me the first time I heard that song, at 64 was a long ways off. It's not so far yeah, off. I know. Now. I know. I, I remember I read the book 1984 when I was in high school, and I said that sounded like it was so far in right. the future. Right, exactly. It, was, it sounded like it would never get here, and that was 40 years ago. In 2001, a space odyssey. Look at everything in that movie that's happened except the, you know, the colonization of the moon. But But, but the bottom line is with all these years that have gone by, with all these years that you've practiced dentistry, you still got the passion. So it doesn't matter how old you're getting because you still got the passion. And that's what we love about you. Well, and and that's what I want to to make sure everybody gets no matter what age. I mean, I think this is a great profession and what keeps it exciting and passionate for us uh, older dentists is all this new stuff that's continuing to happen. When you say you do it the same way for 30 years because that's what I do and it works for me, get off that horse. Right. Time to move on. Exactly. Time to move on. <laughs> all right, Dr. Lowe, we love you. Um, well, we have to have you back because we've got, even in our conversation offline and during this podcast, you mentioned three or four different things that we could have another uh, discussion about. And, and again, it's a great value to our listeners. They appreciate you. Well, and Phil, it's always a pleasure to me to work with you and to work with Viva. I, I, uh, um, I, I just uh, love it. So anytime you ask, I'm here. All right, beautiful. We headsets ready. We appreciate that. And, and uh, uh, if I don't talk to you before September, happy 64th. If I do, uh, that would be even better. But until then, thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Phil, it's always a pleasure. <laughs>